In our exposition of the book of Luke, title of the message, This Age, we'll be looking at a fairly small portion of Scripture, verses 31 to 35. Um, last week we had a bit of a topical message on fear, discouragement, and doubt, based upon the testimony of John the Baptist as we saw him in Luke 7. Before that, we exposited through a chunk of um, Luke 7, speaking on John and these things. We'll, we'll reference that again in a few moments. John has questioned the identity of Jesus as Messiah. And Jesus tells John, as we've covered uh, extensively over the past couple of weeks, Blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. That word literally meaning to offended, word literally meaning to stumble or to be tripped up at. Then Jesus defends John. All throughout the book we have seen just how differently John and Jesus are as ministers of the gospel. And yet, what we have mentioned is that though their approach was different, though their lifestyle was different, though their their character was different, yet their message is without question one and the same. Earlier in our time in Luke, we considered the public ministry of John. And we considered it the day that Jesus came to him and was baptized of him in the wilderness. We read of that in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 35, where the Bible says this, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John, to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I need to be baptized of thee. And comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. The Bible says then he suffered him. John came preaching a message. That message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was a minister of spiritual preparation and alignment, calling upon the people to ready themselves through mourning and through humility, through repentance for the coming of their Messiah. Now, Jesus came to be baptized of John, baptism being a public expression of agreement or alignment with the claims of the one in whose name you're being baptized. So Jesus came to submit himself to John's baptism, to publicly align with, to publicly agree with John's ministry. When we're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, as we'll be able to see next week when we have our baptism uh, of Eliana, when we're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost in believer's baptism, we are expressing our public alignment with, it's a public expression of what has already happened in our hearts, an alignment with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was baptized of John, he was quite significantly validating to all of the witnesses there. And indeed, all of history as it's inscribed in the finished word of God, that Jesus came not in conflict with the message of John, but in full agreement with John's message. And this is essential for our understanding of what happens in several gospel passages, including here in Luke chapter 7. We must understand that Jesus and John have the same message. Now, two weeks ago, as we uh, concluded our exposition of Luke 7, verses 19 to 30, we mentioned the contrast that we saw in verses 29 and 30, which told us this, And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John, Luke seven twenty nine, And then verse 30, But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, 
being not baptized of him. Now, we find a predictable correlation here. Those who submitted to John's baptism heard Jesus and received the message of Jesus. Those who did not submit themselves to the baptism of John, likewise, when they saw the works of Jesus, did not hear him. They did not receive his message and his ministry. And we mentioned this last time, that we cannot separate these two in message. That would be John and Jesus. We can only separate them in method. And it is this idea, that standing before Christ were some who were baptized with the baptism of John and so believed on Jesus. Others who were not baptized with the baptism of John, they rejected John's message. And because they rejected John's message, they quite naturally rejected Jesus's as well. Rejected what the Bible says, rejected the counsel of God against themselves. And we talked about that. We talked about the fact that to to resist Christ in any context is to resist the counsel of God and is to do so to our own detriment. And as he continues, Jesus then speaks towards that majority. The general tone of the generation that had rejected both John and himself. Because the majority had indeed rejected John and rejected Christ. And he speaks to that generation and he says this, continuing in verses 31 and 32. And the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? They are likened to children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, We have piped unto you and ye have not danced. We have mourned to you and ye have not wept. Jesus is giving an analogy of this generation that stands before him, specifically the men of this generation, not, not necessarily in gender, just the people of this generation. He's saying, What should I do? Whereunto shall I liken the people, the men of this generation? Now, the word generation in in the Greek is is used to delineate a period of time, an age. It's not always used of a generation in the sense that we would think of it, uh, one generation to another, that 20 or 30 year span that we would call a generation. It's simply considered a, a period of time. It's most often translated generation in our King James Bible. Uh, it's reflected that way 37 times. Two times it's translated age. Two times it's simply translated time. And then one time it's translated nation. And I say this because the concept of a generation and an age are very different in our minds, aren't they? The idea of a generation and the idea of an age. In in the English mind, these are very different, but both concepts are indeed valid expressions of the word. And as we, anytime we we look into um, the word of God and we see the word generation, we look back behind it and we see uh, this word, which can mean age or a period of time. We understand that there might be a decision made to call it a generation that we might think of it, 20 to 30 years, or Jesus might actually be speaking of the generation as in that entire age, a, a larger period of time, the time within which um, They were operating that may encompass many generations. In this case, I believe that the King James translators and uh, our standard use of the word would probably be quite valid. He would be speaking about 
this particular group of leaders of the nation of the time, this particular um, group of men who had been raised up to be a, a uh, influence to this nation. And Jesus is speaking to this direct generation, which has been given a blessing, unlike any generation that had gone before them. This generation had been given the blessing of two great messengers. They'd been given John the Baptist, who Jesus has just told us in Luke 7, is the greatest prophet to be born of women. And the other, his forerunner, the one who would come after him, the very Son of God. Two messengers, one message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And to this generation, he says, unto what shall I liken you? How can I describe the way you are acting? And he says this, you're acting like a bunch of children. Sitting in an open market, calling to one another to play a game. At first, they offered a pipe to play some sort of merry tune that they can dance to. Perhaps like a wedding procession or something to that sort. They, they say, let's play as if there's a celebration going on. One of the feast days, a wedding procession, uh, a coming of age, something like that. Let's, let's play that. And a group of kids say, no, I don't want to dance. So they say instead, okay, well, let's mourn instead. If you don't want to dance, then let's weep. Let's uh, enact some sort of mourning, maybe like a funeral procession or something of that sort. I don't want to weep. It's that childish attitude of not getting what you want, so you just don't want to play, right? It's that child attitude of saying, you're not doing it the way I expect it. You're not doing it the way I want it. So I'm not going to be happy no matter what you want to do. Where a child doesn't get his way, so regardless of what he's asked, he's just not going to enjoy it. He's going to make sure he doesn't enjoy it, because by not enjoying it, he's telling you he's not happy with you. And by withholding from himself some privilege, by, by rejecting the counsel of God against themselves, they're telling God, I'm not happy with the product you're putting forth here. And so I'm just going to pout. We call it throwing a fit. Because what they're being told is not what they expected. What John was telling them about the kingdom of heaven is not what they expected. What Jesus is telling them about the kingdom of heaven is not what they expected. Two very different methods of telling them about it. They didn't expect either of them. They didn't like either of them. So they're just going to sit down, plug their ears and go, la, 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 instead. They're going to throw a fit. We piped, you didn't dance. We mourn, you won't weep. So they're just going to reject it wholesale. Because it's not what they expected. That's the generation. Now in verses 33 and 34, we see how Jesus takes this analogy and applies it to the generation of spiritual leaders that walked before him and heard his words. For John the Baptist, Jesus said, came neither eating nor drinking wine, yet ye say he hath a devil. The son of man is come eating and drinking, yet ye say, behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Notice the very strong contrast between these two men's method of ministry. Matthew chapter 3 verse 4 tells us that John was what we might call the prototypical prophet, living a life that we would call a, a, the life of an ascetic. An ascetic is one who denies himself all earthly pleasure in deference to spiritual pursuits. This is the guy that would sell all earthly possessions and would go live up in a monastery somewhere. This is the guy who would live completely bare bones and deny himself all earthly pleasure 
in order to devote himself entirely instead to spiritual things. John was one of those. Matthew tells us that John clothed himself in camel's hair, that he had a leather girdle about his loins, that his meat was locust and wild honey. Every part of John the Baptist's dress, the camel's hair, the leather and girdle, it was for use, not for ornament. That's not what you wore if you wanted to impress people. That's what you wore if you wanted to find the bare minimum of, of dress. He was a man of the absolute most minimal means. By this we know that he was a man who rejected outward adornings, unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees would have their beautiful robes with their long tassels, their long tassels seeking to fulfill the command of uh, the Chronicles where they were told to have blue tassels around their garments and that was one of the expectations among God's people. And so as the generations progressed, those tassels got longer and longer to where they were dragging on the ground behind them and their clothes were elaborate and beautiful and they were clean and they were what we might call sterilized. They used their outward adornings of cleanliness and of beauty as a way of separating themselves from a world of people that they said are sinners and therefore not worthy. He rejected the Pharisees' self-indulgence. He rejected their extravagant lifestyle. He rejected their love for luxury. He chastised them, did he not? Calling them a generation of vipers. Speaking of them of repentance and saying, if you want to be baptized unto repentance, then first bring forth fruit, meat unto repentance. First, show a lifestyle of repentance. But what a contrast that is with Jesus' ministry. What a contrast with John being this ascetic who rejected everything and anything of life's luxuries and comforts. Now, Jesus was not quite this way. Jesus came preaching the same message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but from a very different perspective. He came separated from sin, just as John. John being the essence of the Old Testament law, right? And as the essence of the Old Testament law, a law separated from from sin, it was about separation, it was about holiness, blind to anything but justice, no respecter of persons. The Pharisees calling John one that had a devil for such a lifestyle. Jesus came separated from sin, yet resistant to the self-indulgence of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, just at John, but whereas John represented the very essence of the law in separation and holiness. Jesus condescended to men of low estate. Jesus represented grace. He did not judge sinners from afar. He went in among the sinners, not mingling in their sins, but sitting among them to call them out of their sins. Jesus operated within the social habits of a normal man, and yet did so not just with men of stellar reputation, but with men of low character. Now, surely, 
If John was rejected for his lifestyle of asceticism, if they call him a man who had a devil, he must be crazy. He's out there living in the desert, eating locusts and wild honey, wearing a, a camel's hair and a leathern girdle. He's preaching repentance. He's baptizing people in the wilderness. Yes, the people see him as a prophet. We think he has a devil. He told us that we're a generation of vipers. He told us to flee from the wrath that is to come. He told us these things. We say he has a devil. Now, as we consider this, surely if John was rejected for his lifestyle, Jesus would be accepted, right? For his willingness to be among the people. You'd be wrong. It was not so. See, because Jesus had another problem. John was crazy in that he called them a generation of vipers, and that made them feel guilty. Jesus sat with the publicans and sinners. Those whom the Pharisees and the Sadducees had rejected by default, not just in sin, but in character and person, because of their lifestyle. Jesus was charged with being a glutton and a wine-bibber. Gluttony is when a man overeats, gorging himself, showing no self-control over his appetites. Wine-bibbing is when a man overdrinks and thus regularly allows himself to fall into intoxication. These are false charges, just as the charge against John. They call John a, a devil. They said he has a devil. They call Jesus a glutton and a wine-bibber. What are they doing? They're throwing a fit. They are fussing. They say, you're mourning. That's John. We don't want to mourn. Then you're playing. That's Jesus. We don't want to dance. And so we're just going to Seek to destroy your character. We're going to tell lies to tear you down. And the biggest problem, of course, they charged him with being a friend of publicans and sinners, which was the truth. He was a friend of publicans and sinners. But then Jesus says something else very important, something which should be a rallying cry for the Christian life in verse 35. Jesus said, But wisdom is justified of all her children. I love this phrase. John was a man of complete personal separation. Jesus mingled among sinners. The Pharisees were men who separated from the common man and yet lived a complete life of lavish lavish hypocrisy among themselves. The wisdom of John and of Jesus are not validated by their method of delivery, but by the fruit of their message and the consistency with which they lived out their message. The children of wisdom... Those who truly follow truth wherever it leads will not be swayed by false attempts to be distracted by these Pharisees. The children of wisdom will identify in the midst of all of the spurious attacks against them leveled by self-righteous and unbelieving people. They will identify truth and follow it where it takes them. Not everyone accepts wisdom, but that it is wisdom is born out of the results that wisdom produces. Wisdom is justified of her children. When wisdom is performed, when something wise is done, the results of wisdom speak for themselves. And so, Jesus says, the Pharisees and the Sadducees decry John as possessed, decry Jesus as intemperate, but those of true wisdom know that these things simply are not true and will not be swayed by a generation of men who are spiritually petulant children, who are spiritually spiritual children throwing a fit because they can't have it their way. Now, as we 
apply this concept, these concepts, what Jesus has taught this evening, the first point I would like to make is this. Nothing will satisfy a heart of unbelief. Nothing will satisfy a heart of unbelief. We always start with understanding. We exposit the Word of God. Then we transition into application. We need to transition into application because the Word of God is intended to be applicable. Application number one. Nothing will satisfy a heart of unbelief. We've heard time and again the words of Jeremiah 17.9. That the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? What we read in this passage is two men whose methods could not have been more diverse, presenting the same message of truth, the truth of God's word unto a generation of men, and that generation found reason in their wicked and deceitful hearts to justify rejecting both of them. John's message is repentance. Too strict. He's a madman. Jesus' message is grace and faith. Too easy. He's a libertine. There's no pleasing the natural heart of man. If man doesn't want to believe something, he can find a hundred reasons, plus ten, to reject it. No matter what it is. Indeed, the natural heart of a man is predisposed to hate God. The natural heart of a man is deceitful above all things. We have a whole gospel, in fact, devoted to this theme, the gospel of John. the, The gospel of John preaches belief and unbelief, light and darkness. John 1, 10 to 12, he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came into his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Here in John's summary of what he's going to teach throughout his gospel, the advent of the word of God made flesh. He says that light came into the world, light came into his own. The world saw the shining of, of Christ's light and they didn't understand it. His own saw the shining of Christ's light. They understood it, but they didn't receive it. More insight as John continues. Jesus broadens his scope. He's talking to Nicodemus the Pharisee and he says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The gospel. But it continues. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. What is this condemnation that is this unbelief? This is the condemnation. That light has come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Light, darkness, belief, unbelief. The condemnation is that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. It's not that men don't recognize the light. Much rather, it's that men recognize and hate the light because the light exposes their evil deeds. And they love their evil deeds. And they don't want to be exposed because that makes them feel guilty about their evil deeds. And when they feel guilty about their evil deeds, they feel like they're falling short of something. But they don't like God, and they don't want to have an authority over them. So they don't want to think about God. But they have to think about God if the light of God is shining on their evil deeds. So they reject the light so that they can live in their evil deeds without guilt. 
This is the legacy of unbelief. No matter how much a man knows, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many variations of methods a man uses to present the message. If a man has rejected the light, if a man has rejected truth, he rejects it for what it is, not for how it's presented to him. Because it is light. Jesus Christ shined the light. John shined the light. They rejected both, not because of the actual method of John or the actual method of Jesus, but because they both shined light. We read a similar statement of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 22. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That literally means to suppress the truth. They suppress it. They hold it down. In unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their own imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. See, what Paul is saying here is not that people don't know about the light. It's that God has manifest the light to them, but they have rejected the light. And having rejected the light, they then become vain in their imaginations, their foolish hearts are darkened. In fact, we know from John chapter 16 that this is the very ministry of the Holy Spirit. We talked about it a little bit in the weeks past. John 16, 8 and 11. When he has come, he, that's the Holy Spirit, will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, why? Because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. The Spirit's ministry in the world is to convince the world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. The Spirit of God functions in the heart of men in the world to reveal to them their need for a Savior by showing them that they are in a state of unbelief, that they have not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Showing them not that they haven't seen the realities of God in creation, showing them not not revealing to them that the law of God is written on their heart, but rather telling them that because the law of God is written on your heart and because the heavens declare the glory of God and because the light of God's word is out here, you are guilty until you align with him. Jesus said in John 12, 32, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. The Bible says He's drawing all men through this Spirit of God, declaring the encompassing ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world. That as we find in Romans 1, that all men understand the reality of God, so that no man is without excuse. The encompassing work of the Holy Spirit in some way though we may not always understand it or know it, is active in the work of drawing men unto Him. And so Jesus says in Matthew 20, verse 16, the last shall be first and the first last. For many are called, many are called, but few chosen. Matthew twenty two fourteen, many are called, but few are chosen. Many are drawn by the Spirit of God. In fact, according to the testimony of the Word of God, all are drawn. And yet, as we considered in Romans chapter 1, though they have been drawn by the Spirit of God, knowing God's eternal power and Godhead, they choose in unbelief to glorify Him not as God, but rather to darken their hearts. 
This is the legacy of unbelief. But notice the last phrase, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. This is the idea that we see in Luke 7. These Pharisees have outsmarted themselves. The unbelieving world outsmarts itself in an effort to deny the truth. They denied John. They denied Jesus. Both men bearing the characteristics of the truth of God's word. They've outsmarted themselves and in professing themselves to be wise, they have become fools. And so we see it in, in, uh, around us every day, right? We see it all around us. We see it in culture. We see it in education. We see that the heavens declare the glory of God, that everything in the created order points toward order and design, and yet man, in his desperation to deny accountability of a creator, functions in a sphere of pseudo-intellectual denial of the facts that exist all around him, and is so creative in his self-deception that he wraps it all in science-based fairy tales that we call evolution. We see it in the false claims now, all over the news of this transgender phenomenon, the sexual revolution, not the sexual revolution, the gender revolution, right? Science does not come much clearer than gender, does it? We have very specific biological differences down to the chromosomal level. It's impossible to refute the reality of an XX versus an XY chromosome. But this doesn't matter to a society that craves the capacity to throw out the fundamental essence of how God has created them. See, because if he has created them male and female, then there is even in our gender something that testifies of a creator. So we must cast it off if we are to live outside of that creator's conviction. This is the legacy of unbelief. In Luke 16, when we get there, it'll be a little while, but when we get there, we'll learn that parable of the rich man and Lazarus, right? And Lazarus is a poor man, and then you have the rich man, and Lazarus ate the crumbs off the poor man's table, and, the lo- and, and, and dogs licked his wounds, and the scriptures say that they both died, and the rich man ended up in hell, in that place of burning and eternal separation from God, and Lazarus ended up in Abraham's bosom, the waiting place unto the, his heavenly reward. We won't take time to speak of the whole account, but do you remember its conclusion? The rich man is burning in hell and he begs Father Abraham that he would allow Lazarus to just dip his finger in cool water and parch parch the rich man's tongue. And Abraham says, I cannot do that. There's a great gulf between us. He can't come over there. And so he says, well, then Father Abraham, at least send Lazarus back to tell my brothers, to tell my family, to warn them to not come to this place, to repent. To which Abraham responds thusly in Luke 16, verses 29 to 31. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, this is it. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. See, it doesn't matter. Nothing will satisfy a heart of belief. If a person wants to live in unbelief, there is nothing physically available that will convince them, even if one raised from the dead. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, Abraham says, then they're not going to be convinced even if one rose from the dead. Because nothing will satisfy a heart of unbelief. This is the legacy of unbelief. Now, before we leave this concept, I want to make two sub-points. Because I can't just leave it there. Unbelief. It's all around us. It's there. 
We need to understand it. We need to understand the legacy of unbelief is that nothing will satisfy the heart. But don't stop telling because God is still working. Never, ever stop telling because God is always working. Can we rest and not tell because after all, the unbelieving heart will not listen? Are they without hope, Pastor? No, they're not without hope. They are not without hope because the Holy Spirit is still active. They are not without hope because many who have not believed have not yet hardened their hearts and openly rejected the truth. Rather, they rest in ignorance or apathy to the truth. They need to be called to the light. They are not without hope because Christ still died for their sins. And as it is written in the final chapter of our Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, And whosoever will... Let him take of the water of life freely. Are there those in this world who, having so vehemently refused the wooing of the Holy Spirit, that God has ceased to reach out to them, effectively confirming them in their unbelief? Well, I believe Hebrews tells us that there are some like that. But these, it would seem, are relatively few, and we can never know who they might be. Indeed, the legacy of unbelief is that nothing can convince them. Nothing would convince the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So that when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, what do they do but conspire to kill Lazarus? Right? They don't say, wow, Lazarus just rose from the dead. Maybe we should listen to that guy. They say, we need to kill Lazarus. When Jesus raises from the dead, they don't say, wow, exactly what he promised to do, he did. Maybe there's something to this. They said, how can we keep people from finding out about this? That's the legacy of unbelief. But for every Sadducee and Pharisee who, like a petulant child, says, I don't care if you're piping or mourning, I'm not going to listen and I'm certainly not going to play. There are so many more who just haven't heard, haven't thought haven't cared quite enough, who are just waiting for that right person to come along and to shine into their lights, into their hearts, the light of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, they will accept it with gladness. God's Holy Spirit is active. And our call unto the truth and testimony for the truth might be the link in the chain that would convince them to believe. So don't start telling because God is still working. And yet, in all of this, make no mistake, where unbelief abounds, there will always be a reason to reject truth. Any man can find a reason to reject that truth. When John arrived, he's too strict. When Jesus arrives, he's too soft. Unbelief needs no reason, needs no soundness of thought, needs accepts no proof, accepts no evidence. The legacy of unbelief is that it will not satisfy. And what this means is that when you're telling somebody and they're rejecting you, don't think it's just because of your method. Don't get discouraged that maybe because you're not eloquent or because you forgot that verse I remember one time I was down in Florida and I was, I was um, in a Section 8 housing, government-subsidized housing. And we were there picking up trash and, because these people trash their homes. 
uh, these people that are government subsidized, they trashed their homes, they trashed their yards, they trashed everything. And so we would go into that neighborhood, we would bring trash bags, and we would pick up trash in their neighborhood. And then as opportunity presented itself, we'd share the gospel. And I had a guy, and, and I was asking him about the, the, whether or not he'd understood the gospel, and, and he started giving me all these strange... Um, he started saying all of these strange things and, and how he doesn't know that he wants to believe that. He says, I'll listen to you. I'll listen to you if you can tell me one thing. He said, how much older was John the Baptist than Jesus? And I said, well, and at the time I, I, I wasn't 100% sure. And I said, well, I'm not 100% sure. I'd have to look that up. I said, I, I think I know, but I'm not 100% sure. And I said, I think it's six months, but I'm not 100% sure. And indeed, it was six months. But he said, well, if you can't tell me that, I'm not going to listen to you. Get out of here. And he ran us off his porch. And I struggled with that for a little while. And I thought, man, if only I had known the Bible better, he would have listened to me. And then I realized something. If he'd have wanted to listen, that wouldn't have been the, the <laughs> a proper cause to run me off the doorstep. If he had been ready to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, he wouldn't have run me off because I took a guess and was right, but I didn't know for sure. That's the legacy of unbelief. I don't have to feel bad about that. I was there presenting the gospel to all who would hear. And I don't have to feel guilty that a man didn't want to hear. One more sub-point. The other sub-point is this. Don't compromise truth to sell truth. And this is a big problem for church today, isn't it? We compromise truth to sell truth because we think if we can only package truth in a certain way, people will finally hear it. But if the legacy of unbelief is what it is, if the Pharisees and the Sadducees rejected John and rejected Jesus, two ends of the ministry spectrum with the same message, do you really think compromising the truth to sell the truth is, is, is going to be an effective method of, of getting the truth out? The problem we have in many of our churches is that, is that people say things like, well, I don't accept Jesus because, fill in the blank, right? God, God's rules strip all the fun from life. Because you people don't accept sodomy as a proper way of living. Because evolution is proven science. I don't accept Jesus because I can't believe in light of all these different faith systems that Jesus is the only way. I don't accept Jesus because I don't have any evidence of him. We hear all of these things. And these things should burden your heart. How can we properly let them know that sodomy is a sin? Yes, but so is lying and stealing. And so is any other sin. And sin is sin. And yes, the Bible seems to show that some sins are, are punished more than other sins in eternity and such, but liars, cheaters, stealers, sodomites, fornicators, adulterers, this is sin. We're not saying one is anathema while all the other ones are acceptable sins. We're saying sin is sin. How can we convince them that, yes, we believe what the Bible says. Yes, we believe the Bible is true. But that doesn't mean we hate you. And that doesn't mean we hate anyone. Because we believe the Bible is true. And so churches get fooled into thinking that if they can just soften the Bible, then they can clear the way for people to receive the gospel without offense. If we can just get rid of all that stuff that people don't like, just minimize it, just ignore it, just pretend it's not there, and just focus on this gospel idea, then maybe people will accept it. 
If we can just get rid of all of that one man, one woman for life stuff, that seven day creation stuff, then the hearts of the unbeliever will finally be satisfied enough to come to Christ. But we don't have to do that. Because if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if one rose from the dead. If Jesus is the Word of God in flesh, if He is the very essence of the Word of God to man, if He is the manifestation in the flesh, the incarnation of God's Word, which we have before us, inspired, inerrant, perfectly, perpetually preserved, then anyone who accepts Him will will accept His Word. To compromise the Word of God in the name of Jesus is an oxymoron of the highest order. Now, that doesn't mean we need to cram all biblical truth down their throat day one. But we don't need to deny biblical truth to preach the gospel. Or be ashamed of biblical truth to preach the gospel. Because if they won't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe even if one rose from the dead. Because nothing will satisfy the heart of unbelief. And if a person is seeking, nothing of those biblical truths will hinder him from coming. Can you see the paradox, the foolishness in an effort to tell someone that certain parts of the Word of God may be wrong or don't matter in an effort to convince them that this other part they should hinge their entire life upon? Yeah, don't believe, don't, don't believe Genesis 1 through 11, but by the way, John 3.16 is the very essence of all life and death. Don't trust this part, but trust this part with your eternity. It's a problem. It doesn't need to happen. And when what, what, what happens when we compromise truth to sell truth is that we simply invite compromise into the church. And in the generations following compromise, it will be our children that are struggling with belief and unbelief. Because they've heard that compromise. They've heard it a lot more than the unbelievers have. And then they'll leave it behind. Nothing will satisfy a heart steeped in unbelief. No evidence will be enough. No method will be enough. Those who accept the truth, accept the truth on its own terms. And those are the terms by which we must tell the truth. Point number two. First, nothing will satisfy the heart of unbelief. Don't stop telling. Don't don't modify the truth to sell the truth. But nothing will satisfy the heart of unbelief. Number two, rejection of God's truth is not exclusive to the unregenerate. We just spoke of a general condition in evangelism that often leads to a group of compromised believers, what the Bible calls carnal believers. And make no mistake, a believer is capable of living in carnality, of a state in which they are denying the power of the resurrected Savior. Paul spoke of a whole church of carnal believers. He spoke to a whole church of carnal believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He said this in verses 1 through 4, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, 
Are ye not carnal? Now, I've preached through all of 1 Corinthians, and it's on the website. So you can go to LegacyBaptistChurch.net and listen to those sermons if if you want more in-depth into this. But Paul addresses them in verse 1 as brethren. Did you notice that? He said, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you. And then he says, I'm giving you milk, which Hebrews tells us milk of the word is for those unskilled in the word. He says, brethren, I, I, I see here that you are carnal. Holy carnal, walking as men, living in a state of envy and of strife and of division, the same stuff the world is caught up in. As Paul taught the believers in the church of Rome of their privilege to walk in the spirit, he warned them of this in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. For they are after the flesh, excuse me, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. And lest we think that Paul is speaking only of unbelievers when he talks about they that are in the flesh can only uh, uh, cannot please God, He goes on to say this in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if through the spirit ye do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. He said, look, you are in the spirit. Now live in the spirit because you can live in the flesh. But if you do so, you'll be living in its death. You will be living in the throes of its death. You will be living in the throes of of. Separation from fellowship with God. Not losing your salvation, but separation from fellowship. As we read in Luke 7, it is not only unbelievers that can be reflected in the attitudes of these Pharisees as they rejected the counsel of God against themselves. And this is where I'm going with this. We Christians have the capacity to outsmart ourselves as well. Explaining away the expectations of Scripture under the guise of biblical scholarship under the guise of intellectual diversity or under the guise of unity. And we can fall prey to this mindset if we are not careful. And this mindset will take us places that undermine every aspect of the church. The church does not exist to judge the Word of God. The Word of God judges the church. We do not judge the Scriptures. The Scriptures judge us. And when we open the door to the mindset that the Word of God has problems, is errant, doesn't mean what it says, we open the door to a mindset that undermines the very essence of the biblical message. And we mentioned this already. If the Bible doesn't mean what it says about fill in the blank, where there is explicitly taught Bible commands or expectations or the character of God, then why should anyone believe what the Bible says about redemption? Who's to say that the Bible is any more correct about Jesus Christ dying on the cross, being buried and raising again the third day, than it is about fill in the blank? And so God's people have rejected elements of the Word of God, can reject the elements of the Word of God, and can live in the same denialism. And it's a slippery slope that leads to Spiritual impotence of the church of Christ. It makes us spiritually weak because we are living outside of fellowship with God because we have denied the power of God. Third point this evening. Wisdom is self-validating. And this is our final point. 
I give this point, it may, if, if I may describe it this way, this point is an extension of the tendency of the church in this age to be like the generation that Christ rebukes here. We live in a church that has espoused the concepts of grace at the expense of truth. They preach liberty but live out of license. A Christian church that insists upon the privileges of the world. The world's philosophies, amusements, and solutions to their problems. And anyone who seeks to call the church out of this world is at best seen as misguided. At worst called legalistic. Now there are legalistic Christians out there. But the Bible says wisdom is justified of her children. The fruit of wisdom will justify wisdom. No matter who you are. We've often remarked at Legacy Baptist Church that truth is self-validating. Truth stands on its own two feet. Truth doesn't need to be proven. It needs to be declared. Now, there are many a good man and woman out there that are busy with apologetics, proving elements of the truth. That's a, a fine ministry. I don't think it's a wrong ministry to have an apologetics ministry because some people need to see truth defended. We all need truth defended. It, it encourages us. It helps us. But whether or not truth is defended Truth is truth. It is self-validating. It is not for us to create truth. It is for us to identify truth and to proclaim it and to defend it. Wisdom is the practical outworking of truth. Wisdom, many have defined, is truth in action. And just as truth is self-validating, wisdom also is self-validating. Wisdom is justified of our children. It doesn't matter whether wisdom comes from a pastor or a politician. Where wisdom appears, it stands on its own two feet. It is openly identifiable. Proverbs chapter 17, 18 says, Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise, and he that shutteth his lips is esteemed of man of under, is esteemed a man of understanding. Even a fool is counted as wise when he holds his peace because there's wisdom in that. And that wisdom is self-validating. Whether a fool does it or whether a wise man does it, when someone holds their peace, they're being wise. Wisdom is itself self-validating. Proverbs 22.7, The rich rule over the poor and the borrower's servant to the lender. When the Bible says this, when the Bible says that the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender, you can know that the wisdom of this warning will justify itself in blessing and consequence. It doesn't matter if you're a believer or an unbeliever. If you follow this wisdom, it will work itself out in the natural blessing of that wisdom because wisdom is self-validating. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. So when the Bible says this, you can know that the wisdom of this warning will justify itself in blessing and in consequence. The wisdom, wisdom and truth are interconnected. Wisdom being practical application of truth to this world. Truth in action. In every area of the biblical record, we can know that wisdom will validate itself. If you want to know whether something is wise, see the fruit of that action, and it will tell you whether there's wisdom in it. We can reject the counsel of wisdom. We can think that our way is best. We can go the way that makes the most sense to us, but wisdom will validate itself. 
As we look through church history, as we look through secular history, we can see the principles of truth and wisdom bear themselves out time and time again. And this is why when we read in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all I get and get understanding. We can have confidence when we read these words, knowing that if we pursue after wisdom, the fruit of wisdom will bear itself out in our lives. Because wisdom is self-validating just as truth is self-validating. The Bible says, if I seek truth, I will find truth. The Bible says, if I seek wisdom, I will find wisdom. The problem is not that wisdom is elusive and that truth cannot be found. That is not why the world is where it is. That is not what, why churches find themselves where they do. That is not why Christians end up in difficult places and horrible places, in sin and in sorrow and in failure. It's not because wisdom is elusive and it's not because truth cannot be found. It is because we have failed to identify the need for wisdom and failed to seek the truth where it may be found. A life of wisdom is not a life lived on the edge. It is a life lived by consistent proven and unchanging principles of truth as revealed in the Word of God. Wisdom is not edgy. It's not radical. It's faithful. It's stable. And it is blessed. Three points this evening. Nothing will satisfy a heart of unbelief. It is not for us to seek to satisfy the demands of unbelief. It is for us to tell with all of our hearts, to tell with fervent loyalty to the truth, to tell with an unhypocritical lifestyle, to tell in love, to tell in faithfulness, to tell in consistency that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and he rose again. It is also for us to make sure we have identified truth in every area of life because we are not above rejecting elements of God's truth in God's church. It is not above regenerate souls to read the Bible and decide not to believe certain aspects of it. But this is what we do know. That wisdom is self-validating. That wisdom is justified of her children. That to whatever degree you identify wisdom and you follow wisdom, the results of wisdom will be blessing. To whatever degree you identify the truths of God's word, you pinpoint them and you align themselves with them, there will be blessing. That's the same whether you are an unbeliever or a believer. To whatever degree you're willing to follow truth where it leads... And live out that truth, truth in action, wisdom. The blessing of God will follow. We identify wisdom. We work it out in our lives. We set aside the call of culture, of society, 
of the world, the flesh, and the devil, of the lust of the flesh, of the lust of the eyes, of the pride of life, in order to live out a life that bears the fruit of wisdom. And when will we know that we are there? Well, when our lives are conformed to that of the Word of God, through the help of the Spirit of God. Not by conjuring this stuff up in ourselves, but by living it through submission to His Spirit. And how will we know that our methods, our applications, are a sound reflection of the truth? Well, because wisdom is justified over children. Sound application and sound principle result in the elevation of truth, in the exaltation of the living Savior, and in the blessings that come from that every time. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true. I pray for the men and the women in this room this evening. Um, help us to understand this concept of belief and unbelief. Help us as well to understand not just how it applies to us telling others of Christ, but how it applies to us living in Christ as believers. I pray that you would help us not to govern our lives by a strict set of rules and standards, but deny the power as the Pharisees did. That we would live out an identification of the truth and that we would follow truth wherever it leads. Indeed, sometimes truth will lead us places that we did not expect. Sometimes truth will take us places that our church did not teach us or did not lead us. Help us to be more loyal to truth than we are to a tradition. Help us to be more loyal to truth than to our comfort zones and preconceived notions. Help us not to be like the Sadducees and the Pharisees who rejected truth, not because they didn't identify truth, but because it didn't come out the way they were comfortable or the way they expected And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in what we do with that which the Holy Spirit would teach us from the Word of God this evening. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.